I'm CJ. And I'm James, and this is the only podcast where we've heard that before. Bad Wolf. We've heard that lots of times. <laughs> Billy Piper, when did you get in here? <laughs> and every week here on Two Hearts, we take a look at another episode from the 2005 Doctor Who revival. And this week we'll be looking at episode 11, Boomtown. We will be, but first, how are you, James? I am not doing too badly. Um, you know, it was my birthday yesterday, so a little happy birthday to me. Um, Yay! Well, that was about as much enthusiasm as <laughs> in real life too. So um, it's, it's very early. We're recording very early this morning, and I'm I'm quite hungover and tired, listener. So, um, but I, I I give James's birthday all of the excitement that it deserves. Yay! <laughs> Yes, somehow on my birthday, CJ went out drinking and I stayed up until 1am playing The Last of Us Part 2. So that tells you everything you need to know about our dynamic, I think. It's not my uh, fault. How are you? Oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. Things are things are a bit weird this week because um, obviously in Victoria, there's been a, a spike and um, there's some hesitation over some of the rollbacks of restrictions we've had in Australia um, as a result of that. So... I guess I'm just feeling a bit trepidatious at the moment, but otherwise pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Good stuff. Good stuff. <laughs> you can tell it's real high energy in here today, folks. So <laughs> yeah, we're, dear listener, we are just, um, look, we, we've watched an episode called Boomtown and um, we have, we're here to talk to you about it, but um, gosh, what do we say? What do we say about Boomtown? Boomtown, more like B minus town. <laughs> anyway, uh, but before we discuss um, any potential gradings for Boomtown, we are going to take a quick look at the week's Doctor Who news. So, CJ, you've got something written down here about an online hoax. Yeah, it's not even news, I guess. There was no articles or anything, and it wasn't reported on. But um, <clears throat> in certain circles online and social media, there was a a hoax going around that the BBC was thinking about are doing away with the police box exterior for good um, as a result of the Black Lives Matter protests uh, and movement and the recent removal of certain racially insensitive content from uh, BBC iPlayer and other online streaming services. Um, <clears throat> and so Doctor Who sort of got swept up in that uh, wave of misreporting. But at the same time, you know, I'm not for censorship i'm not for um you know erasing the history or the past um that doesn't mean we shouldn't tear down statues by any means we should 100 percent tear those fucking racist statues down um but uh yeah it's it was just a silly uh hoax really that they were going to remove the the box from the show but it does i think uh seg quite nicely into this episode um considering how for the first time this week, the TARDIS becomes a prison um, and the travellers are yeah. somewhat like intergalactic police. And it does raise, I mean, look, it, it may have come from like a um, like a, a fake source or whatever, but I do think it raises an interesting question. It's something that uh, you and I talked about with um, the most recent couple of seasons is that what is the Doctor in the galaxy? Um, and the idea that uh, they are labelled in a police box is maybe cause for for some pause and some reflection on what what 
the message that they're trying to send, like agent of chaos or sort of like somebody that's coming in to uphold the status quo and reinforce the, the systems in place. And so I think that there maybe could potentially be a conversation about removing the word police from the box itself, but that is a much, much larger topic than I think either of us have the energy to deal with this morning. Um, so without further ado, let's take a look at Boomtown. I should have said Town. And I was having such a nice day. According to intelligence, the target is the last surviving member of the Slavine family, a criminal sect from the planet Rexacorical Falpatorius, masquerading as a human being zipped inside a skin suit. This nuclear power station right in the heart of Cardiff City will bring jobs for all. And it just so happens to be right on top of the rift. If this power station went into meltdown, the entire planet would go... Boomtown is episode 11 of series one of the 2005 Doctor Who revival. It was written by our showrunner Russell T Davies and directed by Joe Ahern, uh, who's quickly become our fan favorite this season, I believe, uh, for his impeccable direction. Um, we have returning guest Mar- uh, Annette Badland playing Margaret Blaine the Slovene this week, which I'm very excited about. Plus, uh, Mickey is back as. Nope, Noel Clark is back as Mickey. Uh, i got to stop getting the characters and the actors mixed up. So let's turn to IMDb for their little rundown of the episode. And they it's quite a wordy one this week. Stopping off in present-day Cardiff to recharge the TARDIS, the Doctor, Rose and Jack meet up with Mickey and encounter an old foe in the midst of hatching a scheme that could destroy the entire planet. Big stuff for a little episode. That's all I'll say. That's actually not too bad of a write-up, though. <laughs> pretty, pretty. It covers all the bases you need to know. Uh, it does. But for just a quick rundown of the plot, the Doctor, Rose, and Jack stop off in modern-day Cardiff to refuel the TARDIS using Rift Energy and discover a survivor of the recent attempted Selene World War plot, Margaret, has become Cardiff World Lord Mayor. Mickey Smith has come down for the day and the unconventional foursome trap Margaret after she reveals her plan to explode the city using a planned nuclear power station. The doctor takes her into custody to await trial on her home planet, but she reveals she will be murdered the minute she steps foot there. So the doctor takes her to dinner, contemplating the possibility of sending Margaret to her death while Rose and Mickey's relationship finally gets addressed. Margaret tries to use the TARDIS to enact her plan. However, the console opens to reveal the heart of the TARDIS and Margaret reverts to an egg. Thus, the episode ends <laughs> there. Um, so I feel like that rundown of the plot really it gives you the impression that we're not high on this episode. Uh, no, I mean, I, I feel like my comments earlier maybe, um, maybe tipped my hand a little too soon <laughs> on how I feel about Boomtown. <laughs> Um, but I think it is worth noting that we disagree on this episode, I think. We do. Um, and I think it has to do a lot with the structure of the episode and the plot of it. Whereas I'm quite positive towards the humour that it starts out with and the um, the contemplative dialogue later on with Margaret and the Doctor and Rose and Mickey. Um, the minute the earthquakes begin, I just die inside. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's interesting because like you have like this visceral reaction to when the quote unquote plot and action sort of kicks back in. And I mean, yeah, I, I didn't love the human stuff in the beginning, of course, uh, not of course, but, um, but uh, my main gripe with this is that I think it's core sort of emotional question is a complete like flub of an attempt at something. And so because of that, it's such a light episode. If it can't nail the one thing that it's, you know, trying to drive home to me, it's just like, uh, uh, not, not great. <laughs> I'm not entirely convinced by that argument, but we'll uh, have it out here on the podcast for you listener. Yeah. Should we, so where should we start? Where do you want to start this week, James? I think this is one of the rare instances where perhaps going through it in a slightly chronological order makes sense because like you very much got like, it's, it's the three act structure. Like act one is its own episode. Act two is its own episode and act three is its own episode. Um, and they are all very distinct um, styles and, and attempts at something. So let's start at the beginning and explore the idea of a, just like a rollicking good time with the trio. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and a rollicking good time, good time, good damn, good time was had by all. Um, I, not all. well, not except for you, <laughs> <laughs> except for you. Um, I, yeah, so I'm hugely positive towards these opening few scenes with the TARDIS crew together with Mickey, and it's them having fun and cajoling around Cardiff just for a little bit, um, only because. I know where the season's going and it's, I feel like it was a good move to have these moments before the real shit goes down in the finale. So I, I see why they have done it this way. Um, and why I have such a problem with the ending is because that feels entirely not in the spirit of the very kind of human story they were trying to tell. Yeah, look, I I agree in theory, in, in the same way that like with the long game, in theory, it makes sense that it's there. And I like the component parts that it's playing with. I just think that the way it's actively written and portrayed is is really just shockingly devoid of humanity. <laughs> that sounds wow. like a big swing. And I'm, I'm sorry I'm going so harsh so quickly. But the because you know i for the listeners at home i ended up watching the last two episodes of the season um so now I, i've seen where it's going i'm finally on the same page with cj about knowing what's coming up and so i am glad that we had time to have these characters sort of hang out and bond so that the emotional impact of what goes on later um has a little bit more sort of like underpinnings and and build up towards it but even in that sense you know the finale is very um, well, not very, but like equally Jack heavy, like Jack features a fair bit in the finale. Um, and there's, you know, some big emotional stuff that happens with Jack in the finale, but this episode does absolutely nothing to build that up because mm. Jack is barely in this at all. He has a couple of scenes with them at the very beginning where, you know, you've got them sort of like messing around in the TARDIS when Mickey first shows up and they do their cute little adventures in time and space. <laughs> And it's like, oh, okay, sure. And then there's the uh, the scene where they're all having like lunch together and it's all this like big kind of like boisterous laughing and like smacking each other on the back and like, oh my God, don't you remember that adventure we had on Claxton 5? <laughs> and it's just, 
it's so it's completely tell don't show i don't feel like there's any sort of like genuine connection between these characters like i did in the last two episodes Mm. this just feels like it's russell t davies's version of emotions which is to scream that emotion at you and hope that you get it because of the performances by the actors and in some cases that works margaret being a really good example of a performance doing what the writing can't but for some reason these three characters together just completely don't gel in this episode for me and and it it's it just drags down the entire first third it's funny you say that and it's also reminding me of what i said last week about jack how i feel like he shouldn't have been a companion and i still believe that to be true but trying to contemplate this episode without him there is very difficult i because of the presence of mickey it's hard to sort of imagine how like Jack's Jack being there, like kind of relieves the stress on Mickey to be the butt of the jokes, even though he does end up being a comedy figure again in those early scenes. Um, I, I yeah, it's funny. I could just can't imagine Jack not being there. And to your uh, point about the kind of twee into time and space stuff, <laughs> um, I gotta tell you, I much prefer it to any kind of sniping or like angry simmering kind of feelings between TARDIS companions. It's refreshing. And I'm not saying that's happened this season. I know it hasn't happened. And when I say that I'm reading into like the majority of the eighties, when that's all that companions did was just bitch and snipe with each other, that it feels Mm. refreshing to the extreme to have three characters who enjoy each other's company and also make a game and a lark out of traveling in time. It's not that concept that I'm rebelling against. Like, I like the idea of people caring about each other and enjoying each other's company. And love is a good thing, you know? Like, I'm, I'm on the side of love. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's well-written or well-acted. <laughs> sure. Sure. It's a step towards something that I like. But it's also... <laughs> it's funny, because now I'm thinking to myself, it's also one of a kind with maybe some... Recent dialogue we've seen around fam and tar- Team TARDIS. Uh, yes, exactly right. It's it's Again, it's that idea that just because you say something doesn't mean that the audience is going to feel it or that the characters are conveying that feeling. Mm. Um, and it, you know we've talked about before with uh, Russell T Davies and the way that he writes the Doctor's trauma, it does tend to be on the big side of things. You know, like he swings big and when it connects, it's really great. Um, but the the flip side of that is that you know when he has to write maybe something a little bit more subtle, it gets a bit murky uh, and a little bit like oh okay I mean you you're certainly telling me that you feel a certain way and I have to go along with that otherwise none of this makes any sense and I I just don't know I just did not vibe with it. Fair enough, and I don't think I'll ever be able to to persuade you otherwise because um, what you're saying is is technically true, but I. Oh, it's just so, it's it's just nice to watch an episode like this where you have the, the main characters being funny and goofy. Goofy is maybe the wrong word, but. No, they're pretty goofy. They're I think that makes goofy. sense. <laughs> they're pretty comical. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. And I think that's also well matched by a lot of the humor in this first act, shall we say. Um, Yeah. uh, Which I know you have a problem with, but (laughs) (laughs) some of the lines around Margaret in particular make me cackle. (laughs) Yeah. So let's, let's get to Margaret and the role that she plays in the first act, because it's, um, 
there's a lot going on with Margaret here that if you don't buy into, then the second act is going to be just a real bad time for you. Spoilers. Um, I wonder who it was a bad time for. But um, let's 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 talk about Margaret. <laughs> let's talk about Margaret. I don't know, man. She's just really good, and she gets all the best <laughs> lines. Like, okay, I know I'm skipping ahead, but like the line where she's in the TARDIS and she says, and I, I, listener, I have quoted this to James so many times, and he hates me for saying it, but I'm going to say it again. When she says, dinner in bondage works for me, I, I'm laughing at the line now. It's just, I don't know why it gets me so much, but it does. Like, ah, uh, she gets the best lines. She's so good. It is a fantastic performance by Annette Badland. She has oodles of charisma and, and like sinisterness. And she, she's just, she's really perfect in the role. And it does make me wish that I cared a little bit more about the character that they crafted here because the concept that they're chasing in terms of having a Doctor Who villain that challenges the Doctor's morality is a good one. But, I mean, we start the episode with her killing somebody straight away she's already in the midst of a plan to blow up the planet so that she can ride the tidal wave out of the galaxy on a surfboard and it's like okay so it's a saturday morning cartoon villain being all like i've changed though you're maybe you're the bad guy doctor and i just oof yes we've had this discussion before and i don't think it says egregious a mistake as you think it to be the sense in the sense that you know we see margaret being a villain we see her kill we see her plot to kill and then when she's cornered use what she can to try and get out of it i don't think that is a problem in the script that we are asked to sympathize with margaret because that sympathy only goes so far as the argument that she's making in the moment to save her life and it never i don't think it ever implies that she's actually turned over a new leaf per se, just that she has found herself in a situation where she needs to barter for freedom. And the scenario of the executioner and the executee, (laughs) shall we say, um, sitting down to dinner together and discussing the inherent rights and wrongs of capital punishment is not a situation you'll ever see play out in real life. So there is a certain amount of, uh, shall we say, creative license taken to how this conversation could possibly play out and i think that the choosing to do it from the angle of as we've as i've said of a cornered victim um pleading for their life using whatever they can is a good one and it makes for a lot of good drama but i feel like the basis for good drama has to be um sort of an emotional logic that you can resonate with as the viewer and i just I find it impossible to resonate with like, okay. So you, you position her position as one of the sort of like, she's just desperate. She's trying whatever she can to um, sort of break through the doctor's exterior and make him sort of reconsider and whatnot. And so because of that, her actual morality shouldn't play into it. And I like that concept in, again, in theory. Um, It's just that in practice, the episode is using a lot of cinematic language to position her as having made a genuine point to the Doctor. And in part, it's because the point that she's making is an actual critique that you could level at the Doctor in terms of... Yes, it is. 
you know, I bet you've never had to sit down and really sort of sit with the consequences of what you're about to do because you always run away, which is literally something we're going to be dealing with in the, in the finale. And so I do understand sort of the, the building block of why this is here. My issue is that you take a, a genuine problem about the doctor's character that needs to be addressed and you package it in this conversation where it's essentially playing like it, it's a false equivalency game. You know, it's, it's the equivalent of, Oh, okay. Uh, all I'm hearing is tone and not the actual words that you're saying. And because the tone of the dinner scene is filmed and acted to be very like hushed and serious and worthy of genuine consideration, I think that a lot of people kind of like skate by what's actually happening here, which is a a really weak argument being accepted by a man who should know better. Uh, And I just find the whole thing, it just falls completely flat for me because Margaret isn't a sympathetic villain. She, she has made no genuine attempt to change. And so because of that, she has no basis from which to argue her point. And the doctor should know that because she literally tried to kill him three times, not 30 seconds ago in the same scene. Mm. And so when he sits there and he has that little like glassy eyed moment where he's like, Oh, you know, maybe she's broken through and she, she's trapped him in this logic puzzle about his own morality. Um, I, I just, it falls completely flat for me because I don't know why he's believing her in that moment because I'm not, and he's smarter than I am. (laughs) It's funny you say that he accepts that she's changed by the end because he never says that. I don't think he accepts that she's changed. I think that he accepts the sort of um, the the premise of her argument that there is a uh, a similarity between them because it creates an empathy between them that allows her to sort of break down his um, shell a little bit as her quote-unquote executioner. Um, And I think that's inherently flawed because there's no reason presented why he would resonate with that logic coming from that person. But I want to disagree with you only because, only because it's really well written and really well acted. And so I buy it as a viewer because the people who are acting it are convincing me that it's right. I mean, sure. In a vacuum, yes. I think if you if you just remove that scene, absolutely. Like, I just watched it before we started recording just so I could sort of refresh my mind on it. And yeah, like watching it in isolation, you're like, oh my God, this is everything I've ever wanted from the show. It's intellectual powerhouses duking it out with the Doctor's immortality and godlike status and... Fuck yeah. You know, like I, I'm, I'm into it. Um, it's just that within the context of the, the wider story of Boomtown, I think it just makes no sense at all. Um, and we talked about this before, like if Boomtown had been structured a little bit less around the idea of a, a cataclysmic event and more of a, they go to Cardiff, they, they still find Margaret, but she is genuinely attempting to change her life and has been living a better life, but things are still going wrong or, you know, another malevolent force is killing people or whatever it is. And so then you've got a situation where they assume it's Margaret and she gets to genuinely plead her case. I think you've got a much more emotionally sound episode as opposed to, like I said, a Saturday morning cartoon villain raising what should be uh, an emotional crux and core of, of an episode and it falling flat. Hmm. Yeah. We did have that discussion, didn't we, about what this episode could have done instead of what it did. And I do, to your point, agree that having this world ending disaster jut into an otherwise very intimate story is just supremely bad. Such a poor idea. Um, I just, I just really like it and I don't have an argument beyond that. I just really like Chris Freckleston and Annette Badland sitting down to having dinner together to write, to 
sorry, to speak and act and perform this amazing dialogue. You're right, in a vacuum, those scenes are great. And maybe in the greater context of the episode, they don't make a lot of sense. But speaking creatively, uh, they fire my imagination in such a profound way. Um, I often go back to a lot of dialogue and scenes in this particular episode, not just between Margaret and the Doctor, but also between Rose and Mickey for inspiration, because I find the way that he writes humans and aliens as well uh, to be very, very, very true. And I know true is a catch-all phrase and it can mean a lot of things, but that it it just feels true. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's like we talked about with Torchwood last week, like when he writes in a subtle way, I think it's quite brilliant. Um, and in, in, in that vacuum of the dinner scene, like it is a real perfect encapsulation of the way that he can write really emotionally captivating dialogue because mm. her like, you know, and, and this obviously goes to Joe Ahern's direction as well, because he's a master of like that close up kind of emotional intimacy thing, you know, when it's pushing it on her face and you can see it in her eyes, she's like attempting that angle of, and occasionally you let one go. So let me go. Mm. I love that line. I, I love both of the lines that they say to each other, you know, him firing back at her about, you know, of course you let one go occasionally. It's how you justify the greater evil of what you do all really good stuff. Um, it's just that and we started talking about the beginning of this episode as its own thing for a reason. It's because what you've got at the beginning and what you've got at the end, like what you've got sandwiched on either side of the, of that moment just undoes it completely. Um, and so I think it's, it's fine to say like, yeah, it's a really good sort of study in, in acting and writing. Uh, I just think that narratively for me, it was, um, Look, insulting is, is way too strong a word. Like I'm, I'm nowhere near that invested in this. Um, but I, I did find it like I was watching it and I felt kind of, it felt cheap to me because it was so clearly a parlor trick of, of um, one instance of emotional uh, genuineness compared to the rest of it that I was like, well, hang on, you can't just drop a fantastic idea in the middle of a shit sandwich. <laughs> And, and yeah, let's be real. Like this conversation does end with the doctor being absolved of any kind of potential wrongdoing because the decision is taken out of his hands again. Like you have the cataclysm happen to come at that moment, which means that they have to suddenly run for their lives. And then Margaret reveals her true nature, which means the doctor, like, which means that the argument has become moot. Basically. It's funny. You're going to love me probably for saying this, but a much better representation of these scenes in an episode is probably the magician's apprentice and which is familiar with davros right <laughs> you're gonna love me for saying that capote era come through <laughs> yes i'm making that connection i'm making it just for you <laughs> where but like where the bulk of the action of the episode takes place around just a conversation between two people one of whom is a villain one of whom is not and both of them finding some common middle ground and empathy for one another yeah. And look, it, it's also interesting that, um, cause when we talked about the witch's apprentice, uh, I said at the time, same here, I was disappointed that the end reveal is that, haha, I was mm. always evil doctor and you fell for my sincerity because it, it just feels like a really lazy cop out, um, where in, in both instances, you've got a situation where it could have been, Hey, I was being sincere, but once we got to the very end and I was presented with another yes. opportunity to go back to being evil, I took it because I can't help what I am. Totally. That's a much more interesting story than, haha, I was 
evil the whole time. And both stories do it. I think that uh, Magician's Apprentice obviously dedicates so much of its runtime to the conversation between the two of them that if they had done that here, I think you could have had an equally sort of engaging story. It's just they they don't. Yes, exactly. It takes up a very small portion of an otherwise large episode. And look, maybe you're yeah. right, and maybe those the, the the juggling of tones from the beginning to these middle scenes to the ending is a mishmash and a mess. It probably is. So, to, but taken in isolation, I really like all of those different elements. Yeah, that's, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. And and again, it is worth noting that um, Annette Badland's performance is stunning. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> There was a moment when uh, right after the, the earthquake start and they leave the um, the restaurant together and like they take each other's hand, they start running together. Even though I knew, right, that this isn't like a genuine connection, still just seeing that little moment with Annette Badland, like sprinting along with him. I was like, yes, where is this show? Yeah, I agree. The the Yeah, because they have such obvious chemistry together, a, re- a redo of the hand-holding running uh, companion moment, basically. Uh, is thrilling to watch. It is. It is. It's really good. And there's, I mean, obviously before they get to the restaurant scene, there's that great scene where after they've captured her and they're in the TARDIS for the first time. And, you know, she's like just slowly walking around it. She has that great Mm. line, like this is the technology of the gods. We never stood a chance. So well delivered with such reverence for sort of like between aliens, you know? Yes. And then she gets that, I mean, every line that she has in the TARDIS is is pretty much perfect, if you ask me. Like, she sits on that little bench and she's like, I guess it's not usually like this. You Mm. guys never, like, stick around and sort of have to deal with the quiet moments in between your adventures. And that is such a great bouncing off point. I just wish it had been the focal point of the episode and so that the writing could have bloomed around that Mm. as opposed to having to be funneled into it in the middle. It's like Mm. an hourglass, you know? Mm. Yeah, you're right. And it is a quite a ham-fisted moment, as much as I do love this particular scene and and the switch that happens in it, it is also ham-fisted to have this scene of the doctor and Rose going, "Mm, how do you say Ruxacorico phalloporteus? This is earlier in the scene, in the episode where Margaret reveals her plan to block nuclear power station to um, catch a lift on a surfboard, a transdimensional surfboard out of this galaxy into another one. And the doctor and Rose in this scene are like having a jokey scene about how they say Ruxacorico phalloporteus which is then undercut by Margaret saying they have the death penalty. And if you take me home, you're sentencing me to death. Like immediately the tone of the episode shifts in that. And you suddenly are, then you are having the conversation that happens in the middle act about capital punishment. Yeah. And that, and that would have been fine if she hadn't just been explaining how she was planning on killing every human being on the planet. (laughs) Sure. Sure. Yeah. Do you mean like she like she has no grounds for sympathy other than the basic sense that we apply sort of an inherent empathy and sympathy to other human beings? Like, I I personally don't agree with the death penalty. Like, that's in in a in a very real world way. That's not something that I don't think the state should have the power to kill its citizens. Right. Um. But. Within the context of Doctor Who, and especially the last time that we saw this character, the Doctor launched a missile at her family and blew them all up without a moment's hesitation, really. And so it's like, okay, but we've already dealt with the fact that the Doctor is very happy to kill his enemies, even in an indirect way. Mm. And while I appreciate the attempt here to obviously have a character draw attention to that, Margaret is not the right character. I would argue she is only because she's living <laughs> and has lived through that scenario and come out the other side. And I don't 
know of any other characters this season that you could also put into that position. It needed to be somebody new from this season. It couldn't be a returning character we've never heard of before. And that's why I think bringing Margaret back is so intrinsic to why this episode, to the successes of this episode, basically. And to your point, I would like to discuss the scene in the, I'm going to say the scene on the bog, (laughs) the toilet scene, um, because, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like that scene for me, besides being like superbly written, proves why it had to be Margaret in this episode, because we have history with Margaret. So just her emoting in that scene, we know where it's coming from. And when she, like, it's well established that the Selene are a family and that forms a large part of their identity and that alone she is, you know, quite pitiable. And her talking about her family in that scene and, and the loss of them is hugely sympathetic. You, you, I feel hugely sympathetic towards her after she expresses that. And yes, she tries and plots to kill people on either side of that scene. But her argument later in the episode about, you know, letting one go really holds a lot of weight for me based on the power of this scene. And the puppet looks really good in it, by the way. The Selene, <laughs> the Selene is used very sparingly in this episode. It's mostly Margaret in her human suit. But like the two scenes where we do see the Selene suit, this one and the opening, are uh, like it. They've definitely learned from their past mistakes and it's all shot in shadow and darkness and you rarely, you barely see it. Yes. Yeah. Again, like the, like the dinner scene, the toilet scene in isolation is genuinely quite lovely. I I mean, I I do take some slight issue with, I I think the idea of, um, oh, she's young and she's pregnant. So she's immediately meant to be sort of like the one that the alien sympathizes with is a little too short handy for me. It's, it's a little too much of a shortcut in terms of the writing. Mm. Um, but on the whole, yeah, like you said, it's, it's really well acted. She has that great line about, you know, the, um, the journalist asks her, do you have any family? And she gets that great line of like, oh, you know, my, I used to have, I had brothers, they were bold. And the way that she just kind of like sighs it out while she's in her little Slovene mm-hmm. suit, it's, it's, it's really well acted and really well written in a vacuum. <laughs> but you just said like either side of it, we have a scene where she just like eats a man and then explains her plot to blow up the world. And so I think the concept of, oh, well, yeah, you justify your existence by occasionally letting one go is fine if that same um, sort of like push and, and and logic wasn't also then also used to try and tackle the doctor's morality as well, because mm. it can't do both. Um, yeah. I do also think just in this scene and also this episode, a lot of the um, strength of it comes from the music, if we could talk about that. Honestly, don't remember a, a single chord. Really? <laughs> no. Oh, no. I think it's one of Murray Gold's best... Uh, Okay, that's a big claim. It's a very good score from Murray Gold. Um, he, I think it's a bassoon he uses in those, like in that toilet scene and the quieter contemplative scenes. It's a really nice, like, I want to say ancient kind of theme, like the music and the way that he um, incorporates it feels very old, weirdly, and mm. contributes to the the contemplative nature of this episode in those certain scenes. 
not the whole, as we have already established. Um, the other bit of music that I quite like is the jaunty girl about town stuff later. Oh my God. No. You don't like it? I was going to say, if I remember any music from this episode, it's the woo-woo, off and about, we're doing our thing, we're on an adventure, oh my gosh. It's like, oh, okay. Really? Oh, I find it so romantic. It's cool. No, I just, again, it's it's the same as the, the pregnant lady being the sympathetic thing. It's just, it's such, to me, it, it's such lazy shorthand. It's, it's... Uh, I don't know. It's it's a complete I can see the man behind the curtain moment for me. Um, and that's pretty much what this entire episode is. And so, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I just can't, I can't vibe. Oh, that's a shame because it, I don't think it is doing what you think it's doing. I don't think it's like being ham-fisted or showing its hand too much. Like, I think it's just fitting the tone of the episode. Uh, yeah but i mean it's also worth noting though that we've already established that this episode has three different tones and they don't mesh like so when you say fitting the tone of the episode like fitting the tone in the scenes where that tone is appropriate yeah yeah um i don't like i said listeners we disagree we disagree hugely (laughs) yeah and before we wrap up with margaret it's also worth noting that the end of Margaret's story is um, a choice. Yes. And this is where I finally get to sink my teeth into some angry discourse um, because as I said previously, the beginning, sorry, no, not the beginning, the moment that in the dinner scene, the table starts shaking and then the glass panes like crash and the earthquakes begin. uh, Some, Thing happens that I hate, which is suddenly, suddenly the stakes of the episode are enormous for no reason. Um, yeah. Suddenly the world is ending and there's an apocalypse and the whole planet's going to get decimated and I don't buy it. I don't buy it for a second. Um, I think that it, because it comes out of nowhere, um, because it's so cataclysmic so instantly it feels truly wrong and i know that we've already said this the tone of this episode is quite inconsistent but like this is jumping a shark (laughs) it certainly is it um yeah and like we said at the start like there are very there are three distinct acts in this story and act three is a mess um yeah like you said it does it jumps the shark it it completely changes the parameters of the episode for seemingly no reason other than in the same way that an mcu film needs to end with a giant blue beam in the sky Mm -hmm. it's exactly what they do here and i'm i genuinely don't know what they were what they were thinking um but it does facilitate the ending of margaret's story which mm. is again, um, you know, they get back to the TARDIS. Uh, she reveals herself to, haha, I've always been a villain doctor. You should have known. And she takes Rose hostage. Um, and then the, the TARDIS opens. Yes. So it's unclear what actually happens. Basically the, the Margaret's device that she was going to use to surf out of the universe has been hooked up to the TARDIS because it has massive reserves of power and then a plan B, which I hate because Margaret's like, ha ha, this exact scenario, I've been planning for it. It's like, okay, sure. Um, <laughs> and the the trans 
whatever the fuck it's called, the transponster, um, starts, <laughs> um, it starts drawing power from the TARDIS and it's using it to like power itself up to blast off basically. But I think the implication is that because it's like destroying or pulling apart the TARDIS that it like opens the console unintentionally. Um, and as a result, releases the heart of the TARDIS, which we are to take as some kind of energy or energy is probably the best word, uh, of the time vortex, uh, which is the entirety of time. Now, this is a massive deus ex machina in the worst possible way, um, to suddenly use the TARDIS as the solution to this episode is smacks of such lazy writing. And I know I'm a big RTD defender. I know that I like him a lot, but I can't, I can't justify what, what happens on our screens. It's offensively bad. And I know that it's setting up, I know it's setting up the finale, which we'll get to obviously next week, but um, it feels like it could, if that is, if that was the case, it could have been a seeded through the season a lot better and also be, not be presented as such an out of the blue scenario. Yeah, exactly. It's that Stephen Moffat quote that you brought up last week about, you know, viewers get frustrated when the solution to a problem is that got out of the machine moment. Mm. It's that, um, you know, you you didn't even know that this piece was on the board. So how could you have, how could you be satisfied that it is the thing that solved the problem here? And that's exactly what happens here. Um, It also, it, it completely sidesteps, any conversation of responsibility on the doctor's part or change or redemption on Margaret's part. It it just knocks the wind out of both of those story elements, which already obviously weren't working for me. And so to get to the end here and just have a white light be like, Oh, don't worry about it. We, we don't have to answer those questions anyway. It's just profoundly unsatisfying. It really is, isn't it? And it's the same thing what happened in aliens of London, right? Where the dilemma of the ending of that story was, should I blow up the planet and risk saving at uh, risk losing Rose's life? And then that whole argument is just undercut by Harriet Jones saying, don't worry, I'm making a decision and we're doing it. And then <laughs> it's just forgotten. It's just completely forgotten. Um, it's the same situation here. And uh, the resolution to have Margaret regress to an egg it's funny because I quite actually like it, but the means to which they got to that ending, but I don't know how yeah. else you would have gotten there because the idea that she wanted a fresh start and wanted to not exactly rehabilitate, like it's not a rehabilitation because a rehabilitation takes work. It takes personal growth and, and effort mm-hmm. to change yourself. Whereas this is her being able to do that without, and putting that onus onto somebody else who's going to raise her correctly. Well, what you said about rehabilitation is the same thing that applies to redemption. If there's no work done to get you to that point, then it feels like a completely hollow ending. Um, And we, like I said before, you know, reimagine this episode in the context of her actually wanting to change. Then you do have a consistent arc that could lead up to her reverting to an egg and getting to start her life over again. Like a genuine desire to do things differently ends with the ability to do things differently. And then that also explains why she would look at the doctor and say, thank you Mm. when she's getting sucked into this weird time atom machine thing. (laughs) It's just, 
it's it's just profoundly confusing and, and lazy and it it leaves a real sour taste in the mouth it does and it's funny because I uh, that particular moment where she looks at him and says thank you I also weirdly enjoy for reasons I'm not even aware of <laughs> it's the cinema magic thing it's the performance mm. it's the music it's it's the way that it looks it makes you think that you're watching something of importance <laughs> and so if you emotionally buy into that that's really good but like if you stop and think about it you're like wait what <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and um yeah it's bad <laughs> <laughs> but it also sets up this line at the end where Rose, where she sees the egg and the doctor says, you know, she'll get a second chance, a fresh start. And Rose says, that'd be nice. Because obviously Rose and Mickey have their own little thing going on. This episode. They do. Which in retrospect, now having watched the last two episodes, that line makes absolutely no sense. The idea that like, we've got a sort of forlorn Rose at the end of this episode being like, yeah, like a second chance to start things again would be really nice. And then the very next episode explicitly is like, I don't want my life back. (laughs) Yeah, true. I guess it's that same, it's that same thing that I really defend the writing of Rose for, which is that she's inconsistent uh, because people are inconsistent. And they say things in the moment because they feel like that's the right, that's what they actually want, but they don't really want it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And if this episode had given more time, again, like most of the episodes where I complain about Rose, if there was more time given to her internal workings and thought process, I'd be totally on board with this explanation. Um, mm. But Rose is, I don't know. She's, she's interesting in this episode, isn't she? Because there's yeah. a lot of really great human moments, um, but it's, I don't know. It, it just—it's another example of her further isolating her real her Earth-based life. It's funny because we've had a run of episodes where she's been off in space doing her thing, and then suddenly, apropos of nothing, she decides she wants a bit of Mickey love, and so calls him down to get for her passport and reveals, like, to him and to us that she, you know, never really needed her passport. She was just using it to get him to come to her. Let's put that aside because, like, she could have just asked him um, instead of having to do this long, <laughs> drawn-out thing. Um, yeah, she plays it, like, really cute. Like, she's like, oh, I didn't actually need my passport. Like, little, like, shifting of the feet and winking face kind of thing. But then, like, I mean, Mickey's literally just waiting around for you. Like, it mm-hmm. doesn't... I don't know why it's played off as, like, this, like, cute little moment between the two of them when in reality it's just he comes running again. Yes, he does. Which is his character, really. Which is all we've seen of him is that he's somebody who stands by and waits for Rose. And so the main um, thrust of their storyline this week is an argument that's been a long time coming. Which is funny because like we've barely seen Mickey really yeah, across these episodes and he gets very rarely mentioned. Yeah, it is. And it's something that we've talked about a, a fair bit is that Mickey needs to maybe have a bit of self-respect and stand up for himself and, and sort of push back on Rose's behavior because like, I mean, Rose is absolutely fantastic and I do the same thing in her position. What I wouldn't do though is lead somebody on for a year or, you know what I mean? It's, there's just a lot of the way that she treats him and the way that the show treats him as this kind of like afterthought does mean that this argument when it does finally bubble up is satisfying to watch. Um, But it's still sad that, It's just another episode where he just comes running. And I want more for Mickey 
than that, especially if Jack can come along and get a satisfying arc that Mickey can't. I just, I, I find that very um, unfortunate. But to your point, it is a really great scene when he does finally blow up at Rose uh, because they, they have a great conversation about, um, you know, him trying to move on without her. And there's that sort of like snide remark on Rose's part about like, oh, that girl you've moved on with, isn't she a bit thick? And it's like, all right, yeah, mm-hmm. we, we get it, Rose. You, you know, you're a teenager with attitude at some times and you're a compassionate human being at other times. Um, but yeah, it's, I am glad that Mickey finally calls her out you know, and sort of uh, addresses the fact that she does leave him behind constantly and that's not fair to him. Uh, But again, where we're going with Mickey, it doesn't really matter in the long run. No, isn't it? Isn't it funny? Because like we know, well, maybe you listener don't know, but like this scene really doesn't have much of an impact this season. Um, Because when we return to Mickey, they are, back to that same old dynamic and you sort of have a Mickey, you have a Mickey by the end of this episode who's sort of almost sort of resigned to the place that they now have and will just fulfill that function, but never truly be happy with it um, until next season when he really gets a payoff. Um, but to what you said, um, I, the the anger and the fury with which he launches at Rose feels entirely justified. And I really like, and I really appreciate the, the writing in that particular moment because that, oh, like I know I've said this before, but that just felt so true and something I would a hundred percent like to say to a slew of men in my past. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, again, it's just another example of, like, in a vacuum, this episode does some things really, really well. It's just the wider context. Um, It just, yeah, it knocks the foundation out for me completely because nothing here has any sort of, like, um, lasting impact on any of these characters. And, And Mickey especially, like you said, by the end of this episode, it feels like he should turn a corner. And then the next time we see him, which I I think is the... It's, it's very the, last episode of this season. Episode, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, he's just back to being like, hey, Rose is back. I love Rose. And it's like, yeah. do you? Why do you? <laughs> yeah, it is it is especially frustrating. But um, I guess highlights the issue with this episode, which is uh, the inconsistency. Yeah, exactly right. Um, I'm not sure there is much else to really dive into because right. um, it's odd for an episode that sort of um, pivots around a challenging of the Doctor's morality and internal logic. We don't really learn anything new about him or anything interesting or any insight beyond Christopher Eccleston's still exceptional performance. So that's a bit of a bummer. Uh, Jack is there. Mm. The fact that he's like the new companion and does nothing in this episode is, oh, it is what it is. Yeah, it, it is what it is. It certainly is. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what else we could possibly pull apart. I'm, I'm glad that we got to have a good chat about Margaret and sort of why you and I really fundamentally disagree about what went on in this episode. Uh, but at the end of the day, it is a filler episode. Um, I think it's better than the initial plan for this episode, which maybe you and I want to have a quick chat about here. Um, not in too great a length, but basically the original 
this episode was originally filled by a writer called Paul Abbott, who you probably know from Shameless, the UK version. Um, and his pitch was, and his Davies approved pitch as well, uh, was that this episode would take place in Pompeii and reveal that the Doctor had engineered the perfect companion in Rose. Which is <laughs> fucked. Which is I just don't cool. even understand... That's it. I don't understand how that even would have fit in with the overall arc of Rose. Like that fundamentally changes everything. Um, I, yeah, it, it, both in a vacuum and in context, that is such a fucked idea. (laughs) Um, I, I, I'm very glad that we didn't get it. Um, but I'm, I'm stunned that it got approved in the first place. Truly. And I know that Paul Abbott is something of a, uh, mentor i guess to um rtd and so to have him on the show and to have him writing an episode would have been big for him um i just don't think that that concept deserves the level of approval it got um and i'm glad it never happened i truly am Yes, very much so. And that's not to say that we don't want to see the Doctor get a bit darker sometimes or that the... I think the concept alone is at least interesting. It's just as it relates mm-hmm. to Rose, it's a, a real real non-starter for me. As, a, as if it had come in this season when you've got the them, the showrunners, trying to prove that Doctor Who can work in the 20th century. Sorry, in the 21st century. Um this feels hugely reductive to have a storyline about a man crafting the perfect woman, basically. It does. Well, I don't love Boomtown. You enjoy Boomtown, but we both enjoy it more than what could have been. Yes. So with that, what are you going to give Boomtown? B. Just a B. Nothing more. Solid solid B for Boomtown. Yeah. B for Boomtown. Yes, that's so appropriate. (laughs) What about you? Um, well, despite my, my joke at the start of this episode, more like B-Town, this is much more like C-Town for me. Clever wordplay there. Thank you. I am a writer after all. (laughs) Um, yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't, I don't love this episode. I don't vibe with what this episode's doing. I I think it's just, um, a real, a real write-off. I would give it a C minus if it wasn't for the incredible performance from the, um, from Margaret. So, but that brings us to the end of another week. Uh, as always, thank you for listening. If you would please drop us a review on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to the show, that would be really great because it helps us grow and, you know, just makes us feel really good about ourselves. If you want to reach out or have any questions or thoughts that you would like to have read on the show, you can do so by emailing us at twoheartspodcast at gmail.com. That's two the word. Or you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at twoheartspod, the number two. All of this will be in the show notes as always so you don't have to write it down um i have been james you can find me on twitter at omg more james and i have been cj and you can find me on twitter and instagram at cj mclean underscore and we will be back next week to wrap up season one which is very exciting we're we're through our first season here uh we'll be doing another special two episodes in one so we look forward to the parting of the ways we do we do um but we'll see you next week We will. Take it easy. Bye.